open up with me to Joshua chapter 2, and while you're turning there, just uh, keep uh, your Bibles open to Joshua 2, because we'll also be looking over in chapter 6 of Joshua in just a little while. Uh, of course, this is the weekend after Thanksgiving, and I know that some of you uh, had your Christmas tree up in May, and uh, that's, that's fine and dandy, but I figure that most of us uh, have probably at this point, uh, we've, we've gotten it out at least, we've looked at the box, at least if not that, it's on our mind. Uh, you know, when you go to decorate your Christmas tree each and every year, you hang on that certain ornaments, right? And over the years, you collect those ornaments. And if you're not careful, you will end up the more Christmases that you celebrate, the more ornaments that you have. And, and there comes a time you have to do just a little bit of purging. And so when you do that, you might look at some of those ornaments. And, and some of those ornaments are going to have some value. Maybe they are fairly, uh, family heirlooms, and they've been passed down from one generation to the next, and they have a special meaning. Some of them, maybe not that much, but you put them on the tree anyway until you start to notice that maybe some of those older ones that don't have a lot of value, they begin to get a little frail, they begin to, to crack, they begin to break, and you know then that it's time to just kind of throw them away. You know, when you look at the family tree of Jesus, a lot of the people that you read about from the world's eyes, are basically cracked ornaments. I mean, they're, they're, they're people that uh, had a lot of flaws. They're people that, to those outside their immediate context, they, from the world's perspective, didn't have much value. We're spending a few weeks as we go into Christmas Day, as we lead up to the celebration of the birth of Jesus, looking at some of those people who the world might say have a lot of cracks in them. We're looking at this series, Hidden Figures, the women who make up the family tree of Jesus. And as I shared with you last week, in a very unusual way, Matthew, in his genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, records for us five women who are in the family lineage of Jesus. That's unusual because in that day and time, you did not include women in family lineages. It was uh, focused on the, the passing of the the. the family through the male, but also the women that are included in here uh, in the genealogy of Jesus were women who had some interesting stories to tell. We looked last week at Tamar, and we saw how that her life teaches us that God can take a mess and He can make a masterpiece out of it. Today we're going to look at a second woman that's mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 where she's mentioned in the family line of Jesus. Her name is Rahab. Now, according to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, May, uh, Rahab married a man named Salmon. I heard he liked to fish. And they had a son whose name was Boaz. And that's all that Matthew tells us specifically about her. As we look at her life today, it's very important to understand Rahab's life in the context of which it occurs. What 
what we're about to read in just a few minutes in the book of Joshua is occurring in her life during a time in which God has commanded his army to go into a land and to drive out the inhabitants of that land. Okay, so understand, Rahab is living in a context in which God has told his people, his army, to march into a land of promise that he promised Abraham and drive out these people. And as they drive out those people, they were given a command to wipe them out. All the people, they're to wipe them out. So you, at first, when you start to try to understand Rahab's story, you can begin to, to kind of get an uneasy feeling about God issuing this command to take out all the people who were living in this land, supposedly minding their own business, and to uh, exterminate them, in essence. And it's important to remember why God made that promise. It's important to remember why God made that decision, that the people that are living in this land of promise, remember, this is a land that God has promised for Abraham and his descendants. And the people who were living there are people who were doing very vile, evil, sinful things. These are people who, if you read their history, as the Amorites live in this land, and you got all the different ites, the Canaanites here, these are people who have committed gross sexual sins. They have committed gross idolatry. They have sacrificed their children to a false god, Molech. And God has promised, in fact, God promised all the way back in Deuteronomy that he would use his people, his army, as a means of judgment against the sins of the people living here. And so when we get to the book of Joshua, you're not seeing God arbitrarily choose a group of people and say, okay, wipe them out because they're living in a land I want my people to live in. What, we, what you see happening in the book of Joshua is God telling his people and using his people as instruments of judgment against sin. It's this context in which Rahab is living. It is this context in which we learn of her story. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1 says that Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Remember this as we start off and straight out the gate, that it was about four decades prior to Joshua that Moses sent 12 spies to go spy out this specific land. One of those 12 spies was Joshua. And Joshua had a cohort, had a colleague of his, Caleb, and of those 12 spies, it was only Joshua and Caleb who came back and said, yeah, you know what? The land is great. The land is mighty. The people there look rough, but God is with us. God wants us to go into this land. But the rest of the people did not believe. And so for 40 years, they just wandered in the desert. So this is 40 years later, Joshua, think about this. Why does Joshua send these two spies over into a land that he's already spied out, 
over into a land that he is already confident God is going to give them. Why would Joshua send these two spies over here again? Could it be that God arranged these two spies to go into this land because God was working in the life of a pagan Canaanite prostitute and he was going to use this experience to bring her to faith. God is that concerned about people and no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. That's why Rahab for us is a picture of grace. But when people read verse 1, another question comes up just uh, in it as introductory matter. And I promise we're going to speed along. You think it's a long chapter, Pastor. We're going to pick it up real quick. As they go to the house of a prostitute, and some people said, why did they choose that house? Why are the men of God going to the house of a, a prostitute? Remember that, that places such as Rahab's house oftentimes transacted business with a no-questions-asked policy, as you can imagine. Strangers are going to be very common in such places. It's going to be easy to avoid detection. This is a very strategic decision that God leads these two spies to this place. So Joshua chapter 2 and verse 2 tells us that it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. She wasn't a very good hider at this point apparently. Verse 3 says that the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. She didn't just fib about where they were going, she gave them the complete opposite direction. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Rahab is taking a very real risk in helping these spies. If she is caught, it would cost her dearly. It would cost her her own life. Something happens in Rahab's heart. In fact, she's about to speak to the spies. And what she says to these spies reveals to us that she has become a true believer in God, the God of Israel. Now let's look at what she, we're going to read verses 8 through 21 straight through. And then we're going to quickly look at what she said. Before the men lay down, this is verse 8, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please Swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope to the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. The walls could would sometimes be 12 feet wide. And Rahab said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of the house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I want you to notice what Rahab said, that the statements that she makes back in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, because those statements reveal to us that she has placed faith in Christ and, or in God. And as she places faith in God, as she trusts in God, God makes her a picture of grace. God extends his grace to her. Look real quickly at, what, at the object of Rahab's faith. Number one is this, Rahab had faith in the mighty power power of God. She had faith in God's mighty power. She says back in verse 10, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to those two kings of the Amorites. She said in verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in man because of you. Rahab had heard of God's power. She had understood how mighty he was. She she believed that God had given the entire land to Israel. She had faith in the mighty power of God. But secondly, she had faith in the majestic presence of God. She says at the end of verse 11, For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And that means everywhere else in between. You see, these other gods that the people 
people around Rahab worshipped, these other gods that the Canaanites sought after, these were regional gods confirmed to, to one place at one time for one purpose, not so with Jehovah. Rahab came to believe God's majesty, that God in his majestic rule was present. He was the only God who ruled over all creation in the heavens, below the earth, and everywhere in between. So she's placed her faith now in the mighty power of God and in the majestic presence of God, but she also, thirdly, she had faith in a merciful pardon from God. Look at what she says in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that I, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives. Give us a pardon. Have mercy on us. Deliver our lives from death. The reason Rahab asked the spies to spare her when they returned to overtake the city is because she believed that God was merciful and she believed that God could offer a pardon. You see, tied to her request is her belief that God is going to give his people this victory. She believes that since God has a majestic presence everywhere, and since he has a mighty power, uh, mightier than anyone else, that he will extend a merciful pardon to her. So the men tell her that she'll be pardoned as well as her family, as long as they remain, this is important, as long as they remain in the house with a scarlet cord tied out the window. Flip over to Joshua chapter 6. Some things take place, obviously, between chapters 2 and 6. Rahab shows up again here in Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 through 25. The land, Jericho, the city, has fallen. It's been destroyed. They're going in, preparing to drive out the people and execute judgment. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. 
and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Don't miss what's happening in this verse, in, in this text. It tells us that back in verse 23 that they brought her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. But then it makes a point to be sure to tell us in verse 25 that she did not stay outside of Israel. She rather lived not without or outside Israel. She lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab is a picture to us, yes, of grace, but she's also a picture to us of faith. This is a woman who placed deep faith in God. In fact, you see Rahab's name come up a couple of more times over in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith, it mentions many people, two women, one of them, which is Rahab. And the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 and verse 31 that it was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. But she also appears in the epistle of James. In James chapter 2, James explains what it looks like to have faith that contributes to your walk with God. Faith that works, that true faith will spur you to do something. And he uses Rahab as an example of a faith that moves people to action. She is an example of receiving God's grace. She's an example of having faith. This Canaanite, non-Jew, pagan prostitute is brought into the family of God. But don't miss that crimson cord that's there for a purpose. Might it remind you of something? Think about the time that Israel escaped from Egypt. What did they hang on their doorpost? Not a crimson cord, but the crimson blood of a lamb. Could this act of grace in Rahab's life be meant to remind us of the act of grace in which God rescued a fairly ungrateful people from the bonds of slavery? Recall the condition of their salvation. As the angel of death passed over their homes, they had to remain inside the house with the blood applied to the doorpost of that house. God provides for us an echo of the Passover in the rescue of Rahab and her family. Just as the Israelites were safe within the houses in Egypt where the blood was on the door, so within Rahab house would her family be safe. And though that crimson cord might point us backward and remind us of the exodus of God's people from Egypt and the Passover, it also points us forward and points us to the perfect Lamb of God who would give His life and spill His crimson blood so that we could be saved when His blood is applied to our lives. This is the invitation of God from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 
verse 18, where God says through the prophet, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friend, Rahab is not just a random character who happens to be in the right place at the right time. Rahab's story is here because it teaches us something about the faithfulness and the grace of God. Rahab stays in the city. She trusts that God will keep his promise, and sure enough, she is kept safe. But God's grace goes further than just her safety. God chooses Rahab to demonstrate that his grace extends to all people regardless of their nationality and regardless of their righteousness. Because after the battle of Jericho, Rahab and her family are brought into the nation of Israel. They are grafted in to God's family. Rahab marries Salmon. Salmon's dad is a man by the name of Nashon, who is a prince the tribe of Judah. Rahab and Salmon, as we, Matthew 1 tells us, has Bo, they, they have a child named Boaz. You'll see Boaz next week. He marries a cute little girl named Ruth. She's next week. But then understand that Rahab's great-great-grandson is a pretty famous man. He becomes king of Israel, King David. And eventually, from Rahab's lineage comes Jesus Christ himself. What better picture of grace will you ever find than the fact that one of Jesus' ancestors was Rahab, a heathen pagan prostitute who received God's grace and was transformed, cleansed by her faith in God and given a place of prominence as a display of the grace of God. This is a story about a woman who had a past. This is a story about a woman who made some bad choices in her life. And guess what? All of us have a past. All of us have made some bad choices in our lives. But God looks at this differently than man. Hear me. We're, we're, we're done. But hear this before we're done. The choices you have made in the past are not nearly as important as the choices that you make right now. The choices you have made are not nearly as important as the choice you will make right now as far as Jesus is concerned. Maybe you've made bad choices in the past. Maybe you have chosen not to follow Jesus. Maybe Jesus has made it clear. Maybe he has used his Holy Spirit to press in on your heart your need for his grace. But you've thought you've had to work for it. You've thought you've had to jump through some hoops to attain it. 
you've never just fully rested in the grace of God, or maybe you've resisted. That's the choices you have made. My encouragement to you this morning is to stop making that choice and make the choice today to receive God's grace. See, all Rahab had was faith. She didn't have a good background. She didn't come from a good Jewish family. She didn't have a nice heritage in God's lineage before in Genesis. She just got a bad reputation and a questionable career. But then she decides to have faith. If there has never been a time in your life when you have placed your faith in Jesus, my encouragement to you today is to place your faith in Him. Make the choice today to confess your sin to God, to place your faith in Him, and to rest in His grace. You can do that right where you're sitting. You can do that if you're watching us online. You can do that this morning by simply calling out to God in prayer. There are no magic words to say. It's really about the condition of your heart. If you would declare to God today, admit to Him your sin, and simply ask Him to save you. It really is that simple. As we prepare to end our time of worship today, if that's a decision that you need to make, or maybe it's a decision, a different decision that you need to make. Maybe God is placing upon your heart a desire to follow the example of Jesus by being baptized. Maybe God's placing upon your heart to make First Baptist Church your family of faith from which God uses you to change the world and through the ministry and the mission of our church. Maybe God is pressing upon your heart the decision you need to make today to recommit yourself to Him. If you're here on site with us, it's very simple. You can look at the pew in front of you. There's a yellow decision card there. You just take that card out, make a note of the decision, the next step that you need to take. And when you leave here today, you can stop by the next step desk that is out these doors to your right. You can hand me that card. Or if you don't want to get that close right now, you can drop that card in the receptacles that we have as you leave out. If you're online, you can go to fbcmilton.org and you can find Find a link there that will has the same decision card that you can let us know the next step that you need to take, and we'd be glad to take that next step with you.